0: Welcome to episode three of The Middle of Things, a new philosophy podcast hosted by me, Rodrigo.
1: And me, Kenny. We're recording in San Francisco.
0: So that for this episode, we uh, planned to read some philosophy of mathematics, uh, in particular on the ontology of mathematical objects. We had been for uh, a long time, uh, for me years, wanting to read the collection of papers by Putnam and Benacerraf on math. Which I think is uh eighty one. It was originally sixty-four for a first edition or something. Sec-
1: yeah, it's like sixty three or sixty four. And then the second edition is from the eighties. I think early eighties. Yeah, I think it's like eighty one. One or two, yeah.
0: Yeah, but definitely before Field.
1: Well no, um, I think it's after Field, but not after, but not early enough, yeah. Yeah, okay.
0: But it's early eighties. Yeah. And um so initially we just started to read through the papers, but we fixated on one particular one, which I think is the central theme. Uh, And that is, um, what is mathematical truth, specifically uh, with respect to how to bridge the questions of ontology and epistemology in math.
1: Yeah, and this kind of came up last time in that uh, Bogosian was exploring the nature of our knowledge of of, uh, logic. And at one point when he's going on about implicit definition, he brings up this idea of the logical object. As having to do with the meaning of logical terms, and part of what we're going to explore is what could, what someone could possibly mean by talking about a logical object.
0: Yeah. So for the epistemic analyticity for Boghossian, it wasn't it wasn't centrally about math. It was more no. general, right? Uh, but the. I don't even remember what it is that we said, but um, <laughs> but somehow I think we came to the conviction that there's a desperate need to figure out what to do about abstract objects, right? Um, and this comes through very clearly in the of contribution, which of course is un, you know unaware of what later came up with Boghossian. Yeah, but it's all super exciting, and uh, and as usual, we're going to jump right into it. So uh, what we're going to be doing is uh, reading quotes from. Not one paper, because originally it was just going to be that one paper, What is Mathematical Truth? Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, we kept cheating and uh, reading more. <laughs> yeah. So now it's more like... More and
1: more papers. Five, I
0: think it's like five that are included. But centrally, it's going to be What is Mathematical Truth by the um, Benassaroff. Okay, so we start with um, something that just uh, orient us into the philosophy of math or the history of philosophy of math with um, some passages from... Pascal Curry, and by the way, we're gonna we're gonna put everything in. We're gonna put citations to everything in the end notes, so that you can buy the book and follow along. <clears throat> All academic style. Okay, so uh, this is from the paper uh, "Remarks on the Definition and Nature of Mathematics" uh, from the anthology "Philosophy of Mathematics: Selected Readings," edited by Paul Benacerraf and Hilary Putnam. There are three... No, the problem of mathematical truth. There are three principal types of opinion as to the subject matter of mathematics, namely realism, idealism, and formalism. I like this, actually, first of all, because it isn't the usual three, right? Right, <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, but we'll get
0: to that. And so, in
1: fact, it yeah, it casts light on an understanding of the original three, or uh-huh. the usual three. Exactly. Yeah.
0: According to realism, mathematical propositions express the most general properties of our physical environment. Although this is the primitive view of mathematics, yet, on account of the essential role played by infinity in mathematics, it is untenable today. All right, well, I thought this was interesting.
1: Yeah, what, it is really interesting. I think what's especially interesting is, you know, notice he, he didn't mention Platonism, right? <laughs> right,
0: realism here is very much a naturalistic realism. Yeah, uh, exactly, yeah. It's features of the world, of the actual world, right? And um, and it's untenable, I guess, because of Cantor.
1: Yeah, because of Cantor, and because well, clearly the world doesn't have the all of the infinities that Cantor was talking about. It right,
0: right, right, right. Yeah. Um, do you find this the least bit attractive? This kind of realism.
1: This kind of realism. Well, interestingly, this kind of realism. Well, it comes up in the papers. <laughs> yeah, it does. Why don't we just postpone? <laughs> put- I, I,
0: I'm glad that we start with this because I think we're going to come full circle to it. Yeah. But it's a very uncommon position. I don't think it's actually held by anybody in the 20th century that I can think of.
1: Uh, one of the major ones anyway in the papers that we read. Right. No, not really. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a later view. I mean, you... Or much earlier, right? Yeah, I guess.
0: I think so. I'm not positive. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't come up very often. In fact,
1: okay. in fact, Putnam suggests as much in one of the... One of the papers we read, he says, "This is actually perhaps the oldest view of philosophy of math." Oh yes, right. <laughs> but it, but it seems to have gotten no service in recent years, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. So going on on the idealistic view, mathematics deals with the properties of mental objects of some sort. There are various varieties of this view according to the nature of these mental objects. The extremes are Platonism, which ascribes a reality to all the infinitistic constructions of classical mathematics. And intuitionism, which depends on an a priori intuition of temporal succession. All forms of idealism are subject to the same fundamental criticism. In the first place, they are vague. And in the second place, they depend on metaphysical assumptions from which mathematics, if it is to have the pre-philosophical character above mentioned, must be free. All right.
1: Now, um, so there's a couple of things that are interesting about this. One is just that Platonism is identified as a kind of idealism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um In fact, the term idealism in mathematics or in the philosophy of mathematics is un- is unusual. That's what I mean. Uh, right. Usually, we just say intuitionism, intuitionism
0: formalism, and, and platonism, and platonism. Right. right whereas, and there are all these varieties of intuitionism. Yeah. Uh, but platonism is very often contrasted uh, with intuitionism. I think on the pretext that intuitionism has it that uh, you know numbers and other abstract objects are in the mind. Whereas for Platonism, it's outside the mind, external to the mind. Right. But of course, for Plato, though it was external, it was very much still mental. It's still mental. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they, have, they actually have that in common. Right. And that, and that's really critical. I love that Platonism is usually regarded, or at least I always regarded it, as a form of realism in math. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah, like real. But that contrasts with how realism is described here, which is, it's realistic, but not otherworldly realistic. Yeah, it's sort of tangibly realistic. The number five is something akin to the fingers on your hand that you count off. Right. Yeah, and and that's why you can't have infinities because hands are uh, finite. Right. (laughs) Or,
1: or at most, you might think that the universe is countably infinite or something. Like maybe, 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 but it doesn't seem like we would have any reason to think that it'd be beyond that.
0: Right. Right. And um, the other, the other reason this is interesting, this identification of uh, Platonism and intuitionism, at least with respect to idealism, is that for all of my philosophical—should uh, I say career? No, I, I should—I should not. Right. <laughs>
1: for all of my Evoc- philosophical
0: avocation—that's <laughs> right. For all of my philosophical avocation, um, uh, I, I was sympathetic, though that without reservations, to Platonism and very hostile to intuitionism. But here I find myself having right. to be. Hostile or friendly to both at once, mm. um, in some at least in some important respects, and that's upended how I, you know, how I dealt with all of these issues.
1: Right. And then yeah. So when he says that they de- that these views depend on metaphysical assumptions from which mathematics, if it is to have the pre-philosophical character mentioned above, must be free, I assume he means the nature of infinity. But yeah. Yeah. I think so. Because because the intuitionists. Have this awkward relationship to infinity, right?
0: Uh, well, because of the temporal succession, right? I mean, if, yeah, if, if you're building on mm-hmm. actual events, mm-hmm. then infinity is at best potential, and then of course you can't get any higher orders of infinity,
1: right? Yeah, but I wonder if that really applies to Platonism, because no, it doesn't, because I, yeah, it stands on it its does. own. Yeah, but
0: then you get the other problem, which we will get to when we get to the master's paper. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and then finally. The formalist definition of, ma- I'm quoting again, this is all Curry. The formalist definition of mathematics is then this. Mathematics is the science of formal systems. The propositions of mathematics are the propositions, elementary or metatheoretic, of some formal system or set of systems. For each such proposition, which does not involve extraneous considerations, we have an objective criterion of truth, in the sense that an alleged proof can be checked objectively. But a proposition may be indefinite in the sense that we have no resolution process. Well that's that's as good a summing up of what formalism is as I ever saw. Yeah. Um, I, I liked that it identifies it as a science of formal systems as opposed to um, whatever it is that formal systems are about. You know, right. In other words, yes, it's, it's, it it leaves off the interpretation of the formal system without omitting interpretation proper. It's just an, oh. an interpretation of the formal system. Right. Right. And uh, and of course, most importantly, the um, the identification of uh, proof with well, that comes later. Let's just say the centrality of proof. Oh no, actually, it's there. The objective criterion of truth, in the sense that an alleged proof can be checked objectively, yeah, right. it identifies truth, but proof—that is a central feature of formalism, to my understanding.
1: Well, I don't think. No. I don't think no. Um, yeah, objective criterion of truth. Yeah, it is. If it is a criterion of truth.
0: Well, no. It's not that truth is proof. It's that yeah. truth is provability. Or yeah. If it's provable, it's true. If it's not provable,
1: yeah, um, it's false. No, wait. Well, that, and that sure. it can be checked objectively, yeah. Yeah,
0: but it, it, it's...
1: Oh, yes, but then he admits of indefinite. Yes, right. Yeah.
0: So it's not... It's not. Sorry, I misspoke there. Right? It's not that if it's not provable, it's false. It's just the opposite.
1: If, if it's not if provable... If it's provable,
0: it's true. If its negation is provable, it's false. If neither is provable, then it's, then it's indefinite. indefinite. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then um, the propositions being elementary or metatheoretic speaks to the same issue I was just talking about. Metatheoretic meaning that it's the science of the formal system. It's language about language. Right. And that's really what it comes down to. The formalist identifies mathematics with linguistics or something like that. Yeah, with some
1: with subset some, some of linguistics. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's, Curry had other things to say, but mostly what we liked was just uh, his laying out of some of the initial available positions. Um, and that's our departure, right?
1: Yeah, well, and in particular, the recasting of the traditional trichotomy in philosophy of math.
0: Right, into a different one. Yeah, oh. one that's more uh, attuned to the problems that we find most compelling. Right, mm. yeah. Okay, and that was... Oh, I didn't put down the date of that paper. Oh, no, I did. It's 83.
1: Okay. And then, uh, then we follow with. Uh, no, that's the that's the second edition of the book.
0: Oh, that's the book. Okay, never mind.
1: Well, what we'll yeah, we the papers from like probably the forties or something, right? That makes sense. Thirties or
0: forties. So I don't yeah. have dates for any of the papers. I only have dates for the book, the anthology, and then for the few independent papers that were not in the anthology. The very next paper being which, one of them, being one of them, right? And, yeah. and it is what is mathematical truth by Hilary Putnam in his first collection of papers, Mathematics, Matter, and Method, 1975, right. which actually brings to mind now that I've been misstating the name of the paper by Benassar if that we're interested in. It's not, what is mathematical truth? It's just mathematical, mathematical truth. truth. Yes. Okay. all right, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the quote from Hilary Putnam. Right. Do you want to read that one?
1: I, yeah, sure I do, yeah. So the quote is, A realist holds that, one, the sentences of that theory or discourse are true or false, and two, that what makes them true or false is something external. That is to say, it is not, in general, our sense data, actual or potential, or the structure of our minds, or our language, etc. Notice that on this formulation, it is possible to be a realist with respect to mathematical discourse, without committing oneself to the existence of, quote-unquote, mathematical objects. The question of realism, as Kreisel long ago put it, is the question of the objectivity of mathematics, and not the question of the existence of mathematical objects.
0: Yeah. And what's
1: interesting about that was interesting about that to me is that that seemed in keeping with the notion of realism that Curry himself articulates when he just talks about uh, realism as uh, in mathematics as uh, being about the most general properties of the physical environment. Oh, that's interesting. It's just the same physical objects. That's what you take to be. Wait, no.
0: He's say, Putnam is saying here that What we want from a, What we want from A, a realistic theory a, Yes, a realistic theory of Mathematics is mm-hmm. to Or in
1: general and, Oh, and actually it should be said that this is from the Putnam's paper But he is He is borrowing from Dummett Right? Anyway, so it's not that important but.
0: Uh, no, Okay, so what he wants from a realistic theory Is objectivity Right, exactly Not, not objects
1: Yes, objectivity, not objects. But, or at least not, not special objects or special... Well, obviously I that's mean, what's going out. to be the issue. Yeah, right, uh, right. But But again... Uh, Any objects will do. <laughs> as long as well, they are... You may not even they, need objects. That comes you, may may not even, yeah, you may not even need objects. The main thing is that it's not, it's not us. It's not subjective. It's not subjective, right. And, and
0: what is subjective? Subjective is our sense, data, structure of our minds, our language. In other words, some kind of intuitionism.
1: Right. Yeah. Some kind of intuitionism, or or even some kind of formalism, when it comes to language.
0: Uh. Yeah. I guess that's so because there are many languages. Right. And we produce them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. And if you know, and if you think there's some sort of you know language of thought, that's still then us. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Good point.
0: So I I I happen to. You know, love Hilary Putnam. Yes. We both do, actually. Yeah. Uh,
1: He's your favorite. He's my favorite, yeah. Yeah, he's
0: not my favorite, but he's probably, like, second or third. (laughs) He's he's right up there. Yeah. Um, And, but but I I, I have a deep problem with this idea, uh, because, um, well, let's just say this. The only way you could get objectivity without objects is -hmm. if there are no objects. Uh, in your in the objectivity of the math, that's yeah. kind of my view, and okay. and, I, and maybe that is what Putnam is saying because he does then want to introduce the modal reading, which doesn't involve objects. So maybe I'm aligned with him after all. In fact, this happens all the time. Right? <laughs> I, I, I read Putnam and I think, ah, why is he saying that? That's that's dumb, and it's, it's it's not dumb, but like it's it's a it's a digression. Yeah. it's it's a stretch. And then i come back a week later and I thought, no, actually, I Where's, thought that all, where all along. Where's it coming from? Yeah, that's what I thought all along. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's, he's probably right. Um, yeah. I just love this guy. Okay, um, okay, so now we've laid out the problem. Actually, no, we
1: haven't. No, let's, we haven't gotten there yet. Let's lay out the problem a little bit. The problem... I mean, the problem okay. will take a bit longer to get to, but... No, I don't
0: mean the central problem. I just mean the problem for the episode, superficially. Actually, let me just give it a try. Um, in the previous episodes, our first two uh we we did when it's, it's we did something like a mix of exposition and um and report yeah you know, we just, we just kind of spoke about what we had read and what we think which is fine as far as it goes but of course the heart of philosophy is dialectic and we weren't really disagree so um we haven't Easily found ways to disagree because we think so alike, but it turns out this is going to be one of those topics Right, uh, and in fact, I already begin to see a problem um, I want to say that the objectivity of uh, Mathematics depends on resolving the question of what the objects are.
1: Mm-hmm, and uh, Maybe you're not so sure of that I don't know. I'm somewhere in between I um not so sure of that and having i have some sympathies with that concern but they'll i think they'll turn on they'll turn on well on trying to make nail down more specifically what the concern is regarding having a a special a specific set of objects that are to serve uh, as all and only the mathematical objects in some canonical and necessary sense or okay yeah i uh, got i'd hate it if
0: we get through this and we don't disagree radically
1: <laughs> but it might
0: happen okay so we're, we're, we're hardly through the middle of the episode but uh, yeah it's time for the introduction right that, that comes in the middle of things yeah um and so what we have in mind is a series of questions that we'd like to try to come up with to which we'd like to come up with answers uh not necessarily uh, consensual answers, but like, I'd like my answers and Kenny will have his own. And, and here are the questions. <laughs> what are mathematical objects? What is the number one? What is the empty set?
1: All right. And so on. To say nothing of points and lines, which I feel like gets short, short-changed.
0: <laughs> Actually, I remember <laughs> we just had, I just had this conversation with Phil, a friend of ours. Uh, oh. And he, I, I said to him that lines are not, points and lines don't, um, aren't grounded in numbers and sets right because it's got they've got their own reality okay at least in euclidean and other geometries sure and then he says that points are like uh, no no that lines are the real numbers you know and and spaces are um uh like you know real number tuples Right. Right. And then I, like, and, I said, and then I said to him, "Well, that's unfair. I mean, you've just you've switched from Euclidean to analytic geometry. Mm-hmm. It's a different thing.
1: Well, does that make sense? But I'm, I'm You no. think it's the same thing? Yeah, it is the same thing. <laughs> yeah. This is this is why it's going to. This is this is yeah. what's going to come up. I think
0: this is at the heart of, the, of our difference. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is mathematical
1: objectivity? Superficially, uh, in fact, I think this mm, is a kind of a complicated subject because sometimes I find. That when i'm teaching my students mm-hmm. i find myself teaching them analytic geometry as if it, it was a formal system right as if as if there is an alphabet of graphs and lines and arrows and mm-hmm. points and things like that to that, that have a right way of being well formed and uh-huh. composed and <laughs> so you're actually betraying
0: formalism <laughs> when you don't really believe it yeah sometimes <laughs> sometimes yeah it happens yeah <laughs> Okay, so what is mathematical objectivity? I, I think, the, superficially, what what happens here is, uh, you know, you go to college, and no matter what course you take, everybody disagrees with everybody else, except in math. Somehow, in math, no one ever disagrees.
1: Right. I mean, there's several things that are funny about math. Like, one thing is, somehow, everybody, for them, I mean, like, except within, very recently, almost everybody has always agreed. Um, there have only been a few times in history, right, where there have been, like, big kerfuffles. But... In general, everybody agrees, and in general, nothing ever gets thrown away. <laughs> like you, right. you just accumulate results. Nothing right. is ever disconfirmed later. There is no disconfirmation. Like sometimes we make mistakes, but that's not the same thing. No, it's not, not the same all. thing to make a mistake in a proof as it is to disconfirm a result right. or what was supposedly a result or whatever. Yeah.
0: And uh, coming the as we do, or at least as I do, from a Quinean understanding of math. Mm. Um, that's puzzling, you know, right. because he would have you believe that there can be disconfirmation events. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I, as much as I convinced myself of that for a, for a period, I don't really believe that. <laughs> I don't. I, don't never, I never really believed that. Right. That's right. BS. Yeah. Um, okay. Moving on. Yeah. How does mathematical knowledge of truth contrast with empirical knowledge or truth? I guess that's the question we just broached. Is empirical science right. continuous with exact science? Same thing. Is math continuous with logic? Same thing.
1: Um, actually, no, that. it's not. It's a somewhat different question. You know, totally Which different. actually we're... We may not address too much here, but yeah. Well, okay, it so... Has been a, it was a big question in the 20th century. You mean in the readings that the, what we've selected? It, it wasn't much of a question in the readings we selected.
0: Well, but, uh, no, I mean, I think it's a simple... I think it's a simple answer. Uh, math is continuous with logic... Uh, to, well, it's not continuous, but it's distinct from logic, and so far as math is or 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 a central element of mathematical truth are the objects that it refers to. Logic is absent those abstract objects. that's that's where I draw the line. Mm.
1: Is that not obvious to you? Um, no, I guess it's not obvious to me. Well, but that's just that's just the the disagreement, I suppose. Is it really about, about the objects? Yeah. About whether there are special objects? No, no, no. It's not that. It's not that at that all. That means, it's, it's,
0: not, it's not about whether they're special. It's or not that. as
1: though there aren't objects in logic. Right? Oh, good there's quantification. Yes, right. No, so I there are objects. That. Yes. No, I, you're right. You're yeah. Right.
0: That is the central issue. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, now you know where I stand with right. respect to that distinction. Yeah. Uh, and um, maybe that'll be helpful. Yeah. So that's that's the that's what we're trying to deal with. Next is, okay. So Quine Quine came up right, and Quine is famous for saying. That philosophy of science is philosophy enough. What he meant by that is, is deep, right? It's also yeah. kind of a joke, uh, but of course, but yes. it's uh, it's serious. But but rather than explain the joke, we'll double up, right, and say is philosophy of math philosophy enough? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: I think there's a lot of there's a lot of power
1: in that. There is a lot of power, especially once we see exactly what the dilemma is, because I think the the problem that Benacerraf poses is one which knowledge in some sense is just the perennial problem in, in philosophy. You know, it's how it it, it, it is essentially a challenge to tie everything together.
0: Yeah. Which speaks to our first episode. Yeah. Right? Armstrong ch- uh, metaphysics, metaphysics as placement. Right. Or Jackson Metaphysics as placement. Yeah. Right? So here we're placing numbers and sets amid knowledge generally. Right. Um, and it turns out that doing so somehow uh, runs afoul of all the major problems that we are most essentially interested in. And by we, I mean Kenny and me. I don't mean everybody. Right. Yeah, <laughs>
1: of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you you start to see the mind-body problem in the philosophy of math. You start yeah. to see all these problems. The problems of
0: reference. Right. Uh, problems yeah. of knowledge. Problems of mind-body.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, science. Right. Uh, of... Um, what else? I mean, that's 80% of it right there. Yeah. All right, let's leave it at that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so, um, one of our ambitions is to have a continuity from one episode to the next, or at least for every episode to have continuity from the sum total of previous episodes. And this one certainly meets that standard by being a, a, an evolution from the question of how the so-called logical object of implicit definition plays a role in the establishment of... Um, of, of what? I, I don't even remember, honestly.
1: Plays a role in the establishment of our knowledge of logical truths.
0: That's right, knowledge of logical yeah. truths. Right, And so we thought, um, if logical truths can be known... By way of implicit definition, something which we more or less convinced ourselves of to a degree at the end of the second episode. Yeah, and it involves a logical object. Yeah. Then perhaps this can be carried over to questions of math. Right. So it's 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 this is our attempt to. Well, that's the segue that we don't have. I don't think we have the expectation that whatever we come up with will connect so closely to. Although there's same. a footnote about implicit definition. Yes, actually, implicit definition does come up. So maybe that's the connection. Yeah. At any rate, yeah. we'll always have some kind connect of connection. Right. And speaking of the previous episode, um, are they episodes? Are they recordings or conversations? conversations? Mm-hmm. <laughs> session? I I can't decide. Episode sounds like a show. And I know yeah. podcasts are supposed to be shows. We could
1: call them dialogues, but that might be a bit too... Uh... <laughs>
0: conversations with uh, oh god no <laughs> like some kind of what, what's his name um, what's that uh, series conversations with history the Berkeley yes thing? right right, the, yeah, um, right. The, uh, the Berkeley the Berkeley thing, thing. yeah uh, okay. no know. no no I don't want to do that okay <laughs> it's we're going to call them I think for now episodes because that's what all the episodes call them I'm sorry that's what all the uh, podcasts call yeah. their, we,
1: we, we podcasts. could call them dialogues and then just have the title of every episode just be the name of the author of
0: who we read or we could to go friends style <laughs> say the one with Benassarif <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah right
0: <laughs> no maybe not <clears throat> okay and um, we're changing the format a bit uh, basically reading from the texts and commenting as we go interwoven uh, and using that as a launching
1: pad to our own dialectic right so the main thing is just the text serving as context for our conversation yeah
0: Okay, so, moving on to... What Numbers uh, Could Not Be. Yeah, What Numbers Could Not Be by Banasarov. This is in that anthology. The anthology, edited by Putnam and Banasarov, and contains two papers by each of them. Right. Um, we were very excited about both Banasarov papers and the first of Putnam's papers. The second one was uh, Models of Reality, which goes a bit in a different direction we didn't want to cover, so...
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so here we go what numbers could not be so let's just um actually let's introduce what the what this is like because it's it's a lot of fun mm. Johnny and Ernie
1: oh right yes yeah Johnny and Ernie so he tells this story about two two youngins Johnny and Ernie two
0: homeschooled kids right
1: homeschooled <laughs> kids right who've been brought up by their by their logicist parents <laughs> to uh to have two different ideas about uh what numbers are? Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah. They, they, the, the parents teach them that numbers are, whatever it is that they teach them. It, really, a variation. Really, set theory, right? Yeah, sets rather. Yeah, uh, the then, numbers are sets. Johnny being presumably uh, John von Neumann's son, and Ernie being Armello's, uh Ernst Zermelo. Ernst Zermelo's yeah. uh, son, and uh, or maybe it's it's them. Them it's them themselves. I don't yeah. know. Yeah,
1: they they are the sons of the logicists who are presumably Frege and Russell or something oh yes you're right yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) okay so uh, Johnny
0: is taught that um, that numbers are a progression of sets where 0 is the empty set 1 is the set containing 0 and 2 is the set containing 1 and 0 where 0 is the empty set and 1 is the set containing just the empty set right and so on the idea being that every set has exactly that number of elements yeah and that every set has as its member all previous members all previous numbers so that the less than relation can be defined as membership
1: yeah
0: and the cardinality corresponds to the number right and then for Ermelo, it's simpler I like this one better Mm -hmm. Um, you just you just uh, have is the set of be the succession relation so right zero is the empty set one is the set that contains zero two is a set that contains one three is the set that contains two and the cardinality is always zero or one yeah and that's it and and the moral of the story well there are a lot of morals that's actually a very complex paper but um the, the very first moral is that these are equivalent uh interchangeable uh but in contradiction to each other right So let's start reading from there. Yeah, Uh, so he
1: says, If numbers are sets, then they must be particular sets, for each set is some particular set. But if the number three is really one set rather than another, it must be possible to give some cogent reason for thinking so, for the position that this is an unknowable truth is hardly tenable.
0: That's clear to me. Uh,
1: Yeah, in other words, you have to give some reason why we should prefer one one set theoretic formulation of number theory over another
0: oh Um, I didn't take it that way the the way I took it is if if the number three is a set yeah um, then it can't be either formulation right because yeah then it would follow that the number three has a cardinality of three and it also has a cardinality of one right therefore one equals three yeah that's not gonna work right so it's not so much that you have to have reason for preferring it's that it's gotta be just one of them yeah, presumably, of course, you're going to want a reason to prefer one or the other. But I think it's already damning that there are two equivalent descriptions.
1: Yeah. Right. They they can't be equivalent, otherwise you get a contradiction. As yeah. We're just saying. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So you know, if if you're dogmatic about it and you think that your particular set theoretic reduction is the obvious correct one, right? As I used to think the Zermelo one was. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, then you won't worry yourself about it, and you'll just think that the others are weird. But of course. That's that's absurd because they're interchangeable. You can translate from one into the other. They both work, and they were both actively pursued by, you know, uh, great figures. Yeah. <clears throat> so moving on, it was pointed. In, in, in,
1: could, in fact, in fact, later on, we uh, I don't think that we have this quote, but later on in the paper, he actually points to a, a result by some logician who I'd never heard of before, who proved that. Uh, von Neumann-Godel-Bernays set theory is actually reducible to the theory of ordinals. <laughs> oh yeah, right. right.
0: <laughs> uh, Putnam says this. this no, it's is... a, it's in Benacerraf. In Benacerraf. Oh okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely is. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, and and so he says, well, so we should never have been surprised that uh, that numbers are sets because sets are really numbers. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs>
0: This is, is, is a deeply... It's a problem.
1: Yeah, it's a deep problem. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, if we can just digress slightly. This comes up with the grounding issue. This is what I meant when I said hmm. that numbers are sets. Oh, no, sorry. Numbers ground sets and sets ground numbers. Yeah. I just meant that to the extent that these reductions are like grounding relations, then because you could have it either way, then you do have a kind of symmetry. Hmm. But of course, grounding must be asymmetric.
1: Yeah. So, well, I guess the question is whether or not reduction is sufficient for grounding. I don't know. Well, that's a separate issue. We, should, we, we shouldn't go there. It's an but, issue for another
0: episode. <laughs> <laughs> Dialogue, <laughs> uh, torture session? yeah, something whatever. like
1: that. Um, no, but
0: I, I, I do think that the point, my point is, once you recognize that you can have either reduction, uh huh, it, it argues against either reduction. Right. Yeah. yeah. I s- sure. Like why should you prefer either? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe numbers are independent of sets, and that this whole business of trying to reduce the sets is ill motivated.
1: Yeah, I think there's a subtle issue here um, that has to do with Quine and Putnam, and it's that it's that they wiggle out of this difficult question by insisting that our language has its meaning holistically or at least in places they do right yeah um and and if so the question of having one reduction versus another is in some sense a question of speaking one way or speaking another way entirely yeah not they're just translations and, not that are a, not and they're not really yeah and it's not really a question of Competitive reductions, mm-hmm. right, right. It's a pragmatic question, right? As <laughs>
0: but that's only true for Quine and Putnam, right? For von and, and Zermelo, I don't think that was the case,
1: right? No, yeah, exactly. Because
0: yeah. they, because and maybe you can help me. Um, my understanding is that their understanding of sets, or rather, the understanding of sets that was common at the time, mm-hmm. is is more intuitionistic for the lot of them. You know, like like sets are very close to predicates. Which are very close to logic proper, as opposed to being just one more abstract reality that right. turns up in mathematics. Yeah, and perhaps we don't feel that way because we were, you know, um, um, we were so strongly warned against naive set
1: theory, and right. very
0: early inculcated with the idea that. You got to be really careful about how you construct these things to avoid paradox
1: yeah, it's also more complicated because we all we all we both inherited as well the idea that there is a certain correctness or priority at the very least to first order logic whereas the logicists all wanted to reduce math not to set theory but to logic second order right. yeah but to second order which yeah, so which is very natural. Yeah, yeah.
0: But then it turns out there's problems. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when you give that up, or rather, if you never had it, yes, uh, sets look just like numbers. It's just one more abstract uh, reality.
1: Yeah. Um, anyway. <clears throat> next. Um, right. So the next, the next thing from Manasarif is. It was pointed out above that any system of objects, whether sets or not, that forms a recursive progression must be adequate. But this is odd, for any recursive set can be arranged in a recursive progression. So what really matter, So what matters, really, is not any condition on the objects that is on the set, but rather a condition on the relation under which they form a progression. Therefore, numbers are not objects at all, because in giving the properties that is necessary and sufficient, of numbers, you merely characterize an abstract structure, and the distinction lies in the fact that the so-called elements of the structure have no properties other than those relating them to other elements of the same structure.
0: Okay, so here he does two things. Uh, he first answers his own question posed in the title of the paper, When Numbers right. Could Not Be. He says, they can't be objects. Yeah. They can't be sets. They can't be anything. <laughs> right. Right. Um, then he says, "Well, then, what do you do about math? You do structuralism. This is where he introduces structuralism.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And uh, you're sympathetic. I'm very this. sympathetic. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. I'm a little bit sympathetic, but not super sympathetic. <laughs> um, we should talk. We should mention a little bit about what this recursive progression is. Um,
1: what I find it, yeah. What's interesting and um important is that there's well there's a few questions that can be raised at different parts of the from this quote, but one of them is just that when he says what matters really is not any condition on the objects, but a condition on the relation under which they form a progression, there will be a question about what that relation is like does it have or have to be a specific relation or I mean the point is that it doesn't have to be any relation in particular other than one that can form a progression. But my point in bringing this up is just that, it could be a very natural relation, meaning, I'm um, uh, meaning it could be spatio-temporal relations.
0: Oh, you mean literally of nature? Yes.
1: Right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean literally. God, of nature.
0: but this just sounds like that initial quote by Curry. I know. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I think you might be close to some old-school realism. Um, yeah.
1: With, I mean, with, with an expansion. With yeah. The expansion. So there's right. So there's two questions here. One is that it it sounds like. So the dilemma really that I wanted to bring up is just that it sounds like it could be some sort of naturalism because the relations could be natural, but there's always the question about the ontology of relations. I mean, they might still be abstract things. So yeah. it's not really clear that you ever get around the issue of abstraction, of abstract entities. Oh, I see what you're saying. So if you if you
0: paper over the reality of the abstract objects and just you know squeeze the squeeze the wallpaper and then the bubble comes up over here with relations right those are abstract
1: yeah exactly like the structuralist might think that he's being a great naturalist but is he really
0: (laughs) this comes up in the scientific structuralism too
1: yeah god I hate this of course it does yeah, I know. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Most of my problems w- with the structuralism will mostly be problems with those people. <laughs> oh,
0: but you're but you're happy with you don't like the scientific structuralism, but you are right. happy with this. Yeah. So we'll have to talk a little bit about why, why I think you it's have different. that divided sympathy and why it's different. Yeah. yeah. Because I think my objection to mathematical structuralism is exactly the same problem I have with structuralism in philosophy of science. Okay. The so-called um, structural realism both ontic and epistemic Epistemic, but mostly the ontic obviously Yeah. Um, okay next is um, the last quote from the same paper any object can play the role sorry, any object can play the role of three, that is the number three that is, any object can be the third element in some progression what is peculiar to three is that it defines that role not by being a paradigm of any object which plays it but by representing the relation that any third member of a progression bears to the rest of the progression. This is an elaboration of of that structuralist idea. Right.
1: Um. Yeah, and he actually begins the paper by quoting some other person who I think was a mathematician um, who says something to the effect of that mathematicians don't generally care about any particular set of objects. What they care about is characterizing the structure of those things. Yeah. And you you constantly hear, when you see, when you read mathematical literature, people, uh, mathematicians are constantly trying to characterize sets of things or spaces of things up to isomorphism or up to homeomorphism or up to some oh, structural relation. They always in say fact, that. the entire point of a lot of theory building is just to see how some objects, in fact, I once heard a characterization of mathematics as beginning with a set of objects and a, some structure on that objects and figuring out how to characterize um, what any set of objects must be like in order to have that structure. Everything must go? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually read that. It was in the beginning of an intro topology book. Mm. You know, he characterized right, let, me, let me give you the counter to that. So yeah.
0: The problem I have with this is it isn't any object that can play the role of three. Only the number three can play that role. Okay, because if there were any number of objects that could play the num- play the role of the number three, mm-hmm. well, we wouldn't want to say that they're identical to each other, would we, if it's a plurality of objects, and yet
1: they're all what we call the number three. So well, but I think you can, uh, but I think you can understand this. I guess the, here's. I'm not.
0: I understand where you're going. Okay? Yeah.
1: Like suppose
0: you have two progressions, sure. two omega sequences, right? Yeah. In nature, and right. you take the third one of one sequence. Yeah. And you take the third of the other sequence. They're yeah. not identical to each other. I get that. Right. But my point is that when you just, say just,
1: just like I was just going to bring up functionalism, but yeah, that's oh well. That's the, my point is just that there are already theories like this, huh? um, which I theories which I think you're somewhat sympathetic to. You mean like functionalism
0: in mind? Right. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. That's not going to work. Why not? I don't want to go there yet. Okay, um, but bring it up later. If I don't you think want. it's much different. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think it is. Uh, but okay, so the, the problem is that when I say the number three,
1: right? Yes, it's, it's a, the, a definite the, it's description the, the that bothers you. It
0: doesn't bother me. I think it's well placed. I think it's correct. To speak using a definite description uh-huh. of the number three. I don't. I don't think it literally means uh, the number threes. You know, sure, it's, it's not a plurality and if it's not a plurality we shouldn't speak of a plurality of the number 3. That's all. That's just it's it's a it looks like a grammatical quibble but I think it cuts to the core of what is at stake here. Yeah. And why we even I think it's at the core of what we mean by abstraction at all.
1: So I don't I guess I don't think it's a problem because I think that it is always definite, but in different deployments of the term, in different contexts, you will be picking out different particular objects to be the number three, or to play the role as but the they context say as the number three. And any necessary statement you make will be true of that object in that context. But, but this,
0: no, because there isn't going to be a context. It's not as though when you add two to three to get five... Mm-hmm. There is the hand counting context oh. or the money counting context. But the, the only context of relevance here is numbers, uh-huh. and that's not enough to pick out anything that will play the role of the number three, other than you know the succession relation and the fact that the sequence is grounded in zero and that sort of thing, which is common to all the omega sequences. Anyway, let's let's leave it there. But yeah. do you understand what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay.
0: So then we switch to, back to Putnam. He has a paper in a different. No, no, this is the same paper as before. We just wanted I, to. I guess I do have a, yeah, one, on. one, no, more thing, one more thing yeah. to
1: say about this. And that is almost an error theoretic way to address this problem, which is just that I think that we always in mathematics have two fallbacks, and that's why there are two specific philosophies of math that have arisen. Namely, that we can always fall back on our ideas and on our, and on our language as being those things which form the progressions that we are considering. Ah, but this or is just that,
0: intuitionism and formalism. But it's not.
1: My point is that it's more general than that, but that the ability to always fall back on omega sequences that we form in our mind and in our language sort of provides the illusion sometimes that we that that's all there is to <clears throat> the ontology of math.
0: I mean, let me read back to you what you just said to me. Yes. I are mean, you saying that the structuralist can even as he understands uh that that it isn't any particular set of objects absent some set of objects to be given by some context he can substitute in uh the objects of language a la formalism without being a formalist or the objects of mind as the intuitionist would without being an intuitionist is that what you're saying yeah Okay. No, that's fine. I, I, I agree with that. I, in fact, okay. I want to say something very similar. Um, I was going to save it for later, but I'll say it now. Okay. Uh, I want to say that... Um, that No, actually, I'm going to have to save it for later because it's kind of hard to... I don't understand it myself. Okay, but, sure. But, but, but I will say this. I, that I, I wouldn't call it a falling back. Okay. I do think that that is happening. Okay. But I think what's really happening there is that by which reference to mathematical objects um, succeeds. Okay, because if reference has to be um, a causal relation yeah. and you have to have events on both sides where one side is the representation and the other side is the well, presentation if you will, then it's going to have to be um, concrete objects
1: Yeah,
0: where ideas are concrete and Bits of language are concrete. Sure. Um, well, inscriptions and utterances are concrete, right? Yeah. And by ideas here, I'm assuming a materialist understanding of mind, right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, if, if you can be caused to have the concept of the number three, there has to be some event, some concrete event that stands in for the number three but it can't, properly speaking, be the number three because the number three is abstract. And so it's in that sense that I think we have a falling back. Uh. Uh, but it plays a different role than what you're describing. However, I think that with enough massaging, we might come to the same, we might come to a closer conception of what it, what that's about. Okay. Okay. You see, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so let's back to Putnam. In that, right. same, in that same paper, what is mathematical truth? I forget why we... Uh, decided to inter, uh, interleave these, but I'm sure there was a good reason. Anyway, so I'll read. Um, he says, traditionally... No, actually, you read this one. Well, I'll I think, read this one, yeah, yeah. I think it's good, better yeah. for you.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so traditionally, realism in the philosophy of mathematics has gone along with Platonism. I am not so he's talking about realism, right? <laughs> like yes. Like Curry, right? Right, right. Realism right. in the philosophy of math- mathematics has gone along with Platonism, as we remarked at the outset, where... The term Platonism connotes simultaneously an epistemological theory and an ontology. The main burden of this paper is that one does not have to, quote-unquote, buy... Marketplace of ideas! (laughs) ...Platonist (laughs) epistemology to be a realist in the philosophy of mathematics. The modal logical picture shows that one doesn't have to, quote-unquote, buy Platonist ontology either. The theory of mathematics as the study of special objects has a certain implausibility which, in my view the theory of mathematics as the study of or- as the study of ordinary objects no no study
0: Wait- oh yeah yeah that's enough sorry yeah.
1: mm-hmm. as a study of ordinary objects with the aid of a special concept does not there are real puzzles especially if one holds a causal theory of reference in some form as to how one can refer to mathematical objects at all i think that these puzzles can be clarified with the aid of modal notions but again, this goes beyond the burden of this paper. Okay, pet peeve, pet peeve.
0: Whenever anybody says this is beyond the scope of this paper, or I don't have space, or I don't have time, it's a paper. How can yeah. you not know, It's not a conference paper. Of course you have time. Just yeah. make it 10 pages longer. I just, I just never understand. Or, 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 you know, suppose you write like 50 pages, right? And the editor wants you to give them 25. Give them two fucking papers. Or just like, you know, one paper over here and the other paper over there. But they just leave us hanging as though it was like format reading, you know, writing into the margins. With these mysterious, oh, you know, I have more thoughts, but I'm just not going to tell you.
1: Yeah, right. I, yeah, I, it yeah. Kills it feels me. it feels very much so like I'm sorry, Socrates, I have to go right now. I, I have a trial. I have a trial to attend. It's uh, such a... I,
0: I just can't stand it. Anyway, um, why does he say that in this particular case that it goes beyond the... Liber- well, I mean, I think it's just really hard. Yeah. I, maybe he just didn't have anything more to say. But who knows? He probably does in some other paper. I, I don't probably. want to say that. He wrote way too much, so... He lived for, for like, forever. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yes, this is exactly what we were talking about just now. Yeah. Uh, the second part. Uh, the puzzles. Right. And, the puzzle theory, right? and so, yeah. But I think the modal logical picture is a little bit more subtle. Um did, we don't have any text where he spells out what that is, do we?
1: Yeah, we do.
0: We do. It comes later. Okay, we'll, we'll skip. Yeah. So, um, or rather, we postpone. But the main thing here is we get a, an initial intimation of what is going to be Banastre's central problem, which is, right. which goes on to be recognized or named as the Banastre problem, isn't that
1: right? Uh, Banastre's dilemma.
0: Banastre's dilemma. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which is. Well, we'll leave it And not to, to be confused with Benacerraf's identification problem, which is the first problem <laughs> from this, with the set reductions. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and it, what it comes down to is, how do you have
0: both an ontology and an epistemology uh, that satisfies the requirements of each? Yeah. And Putnam says, well, maybe we can get out of this by just not having objects at all. Right. Or special objects.
1: Yeah, although it does feel, like, fishy, especially. Especially because he doesn't say anything more about it. It's totally That he, that he says, we're going to get rid of special objects instead of have a special concept. I think it's <laughs> that BS. Kind of, that kind of made me a little annoyed. Yeah,
0: no, but, but I think I th- he's definitely on I, I don't know if I should say anything now or if we wait until... I think we wait until after, because there's another bit where we go into what this modal logic picture is. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's very clever and important. So let's hold off. Okay. Um, all right, so now we get to the first...
1: No, the, no. Last, the last the, the last from What Numbers Could Not Be.
0: Yeah, the last from the Ernie and Johnny paper. I, I selected this one. This is actually the last uh, paragraph or the last few sentences of the paper. He says, of our poor abandoned children, Johnny and Ernie, I think we must conclude that their education was badly mismanaged, not from the mathematical point of view, since we have concluded that there is no mathematically significant difference between what they were taught and what ordinary mortals know. But from the philosophical point of view, they think that numbers are really sets of sets, while if truth be known, there are no such things as numbers. Which is not to say that there are not at least two prime numbers between 15 and 20. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, notice the contradiction, right? There There are no numbers, no such things as numbers, but there are numbers.
1: Well, so here he's playing with the fact that he has not committed himself to the view in the next paper, which is that the ontology or the truth conditions of mathematical statements should be but, so straightforwardly read off the sentence no, let's, structure. Let's not get
0: ahead. Let's look ahead the uh, sentence structure. It's just no, it's, it's, I, know, I know you're right. Yeah. I'm not saying you're wrong. Yeah. But, it, but, it's, but there's a more superficial way to, to get the shock value. Yeah, and because I mean it's right at the end because it's like a joke, right? I mean he's Yeah, saying, of course, yeah. He's saying don't don't be fooled into thinking that numbers have to be sets or any particular set. Mhm. There are smarter ways to do this. Or any particular
1: object, yeah. Or particular
0: objects. Yeah. There's a smarter way to do this, namely structuralism. It's yeah. whatever plays the role. So on the one hand, there're no such things as numbers. But on the other hand, we have to go on saying that there are numbers. There's, there's a number greater than 15, there's one less than 20. That there are prime numbers, that there are so many prime numbers in certain contexts. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's jarring. Uh, right. To yes. say the and least. it's meant to be jarring. It's meant to be jarring. <laughs> but as, I think the way he meant it here is, look, you just have to accommodate yourself to this double talk.
1: Right. Yeah, And that's,
0: he's saying, it's okay. It may seem strange. Yeah. But it's only going to seem strange if you insist, as Johnny and Ernie, on a particular reduction. Yeah, if you don't insist on a particular reduction, it won't seem so strange.
1: Yeah,
0: I think that was the intent. But um, the story continues, right? Right. I mean, he changes his mind. But before we get to that, um, there is. So actually, we did only do one Putnam paper from the collection, but it's actually two Putnam papers because there's one from the collection and another one from his other
1: from his collected from works. his collection. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, so this is now the first quote from the paper his first paper in the um, the mathematics collection
1: yeah mathematics without foundations okay good so he says of the many possible equivalent descriptions technical term of the realm of mathematical facts there are two which seem to me to have special importance i shall refer to these somewhat misleadingly i admit by the titles mathematics as modal logic and mathematics as set theory if one fastens on the second picture the object picture, then mathematics is wholly extensional, but presupposes a vast totality of eternal objects. And he hates
0: this. He hates this like spooky, eternal, otherworldly objects.
1: Yeah, right. While if one fastens on the first picture, the modal picture, then mathematics has no special objects of its own, but simply tells us what follows from what. If, quote-unquote, Platonism has appeared to be the issue in the philosophy of mathematics of recent years... I suggest that it is because we have been too much in the grip of the second picture.
0: Yeah. Well, this is very similar to Banasarif's suggestion of structuralism.
1: Yeah, although the difference is that Benasserif doesn't bring up anything to do with modality. He just says it can't be anything in particular. Well, he does, it has he does talk about... to be something structural, but it's right, not... Right, but a... what is it
0: that these structures have in common, right? That's... It, it, it's what they have in common is what follows from what
1: and so Ah uh, yes right namely what's the successor <laughs> uh-huh. what's next in the omega sequence right so for yeah. bonasareff
0: what follows from what is given by the structure yeah and for putnam it's not given by the structure because that would just be another object instead it's just specified explicitly which is the modal picture
1: specified oh i see right in other words you to yeah. say what follows from
0: what is to give the modality of mathematical truth.
1: Right. Yeah, it's just okay. But he does talk about possibility. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, but he doesn't think that those are <laughs>
1: It's not ever it's really that's another yet another frustrating thing about Putnam. In fact, this is something that I'm realizing, I hope maybe one of our listeners knows more about Putnam than I do, because I don't actually know what he thinks about possible worlds. I don't know that he ever actually wrote down anywhere.
0: Uh, This is our first official RFC, Request for Comments. Right, right. If anybody knows what Putnam says about um, the ontology of possible worlds, uh, we are desperate to know. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Please post comments on the website, or otherwise, tell us somehow. Yeah. Okay. um okay and then from that same paper immediately on the next page he says on the other hand if one is puzzled by the question recently raised by ben how numbers can be objects if they have no properties except order in a particular omega sequence then i believe one can be helped by the answer call them objects if you like they are objects in the sense of being things one can quantify over but remember that these objects have the special property that each fact about them is in an equivalent formulation simply a fact about any omega sequence. Quote, numbers exist, unquote, but all this comes to, for mathematics anyway, is that one, omega sequences are possible, mathematically speaking, and two, there are necessary truths of the form, quote, if alpha is an omega sequence, then dot, 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 unquote. Whether any concrete example of an omega sequence exists or not. So there it is, the... There being a necessary truth is where the modality enters. Right. And the existence of some omega sequence isn't even necessary. Right, but possible. It just needs to be possible. So there's modality on both sides. Yeah. There you go. That's, I think, uh, the best description we found of mathematics as modal logic. Right. Leaving out, of course, the ontology of possible worlds. Very convenient. Yeah, very
1: convenient. Yeah.
0: All right. Now we get to the heart of... Um, our discussion in this episode, which we've already gotten 59 minutes into. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, Mathematical Truth by Paul Benassarof in that famous collection of 1983. Um, I'll read a. Uh, yeah, I'll Should just I read the first one. Read first, yeah. Okay. It is my contention that two quite distinct kinds of concerns have separately motivated accounts of the nature of mathematical truth. One, the concern for having a homogeneous semantical theory in which semantics for the propositions of mathematics parallel the semantics for the rest of the language, and two, the concern that the account of mathematical truth mesh with a reasonable epistemology. It will be my general thesis that almost all accounts of the concept of mathematical truth can be identified with serving one or another of these masters at the expense of the other. And as you know from the Bible, you cannot serve two masters. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so that is the dilemma. Um, and it really is the dilemma. Like,
0: It's not really a dilemma, though. It's not about which one you should serve. You need to serve both.
1: Well, no, of course, yeah, I know. I, people they call it a, a dilemma just because well, the vast majority of people come down on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. It's really more a dilemma in that nobody has been smart enough yet to figure out how to do both at once. Yeah, but it's not in such an. It's not such a. Uh, it's not a logically obvious, um, mutually exclusive set of conditions. Right. Let's elaborate. Um... A little on, on what this is about. In fact, the only time it becomes a dilemma is when you try to give the obvious answers or the obvious support for each condition. Mm-hmm. Um, the obvious the obvious uh, strategy for satisfying mm-hmm. the semantics being Platonism, and the obvious strategy for satisfying the epistemological criterion being something like formalism.
0: Right. And I, actually, this is as good a time as any to come out uh, from my own view. It's so like you've, you've um, put your flag on structuralism, right? And I'm gonna say that I'm, i I like Platonism and formalism at the same time. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay, good. So in other words, um, my view is is um, more satisfying than yours, but it's internally inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> so it satisfies me more by also unsatisfying me. oh uh, yes. Great. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. Yeah, that's not meant to mean very much. Um, <laughs> but but let me just elaborate why I feel this way. So I want to be Platonist because um, I want to be forthright about there being unique objects for each of the various uh, abstract objects that we refer to in mathematics. I think there is a unique object, which is the number three. Okay. And so on. Um, but I And I also want to say that it is as Putnam... Uh, gives his as, as per his conditions regarding a realistic philosophy of mathematics I want to say that it's not about me it's not about you it's not about English language it's not about thoughts right it's about the number three yeah okay so I want to say that but at the same time I acknowledge uh, the the difficulty of the other worldliness. And and here I fall back on formalism I want to say that there's a sense in which when we do math we're just working with the squiggles and spoggles. We're really at the syntactic level, uh, in the work. Yeah. So the task for me is to say, is to explain how it is that, in the work, and by the work I mean that which, at college, no one disagrees with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Okay. The textbook, the problem set, right? The proof evaluation. This work, I want to say, is very much an evaluation of linguistic forms. And yet, the semantics is operable. And it is there. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I want to say, we only work with the syntax, but we're working on things that have a semantics, and the semantics is real. Right. So that's my challenge. And and um, this isn't obvious yet, but I think our views are not that far apart. Sure Okay So let's go on Uh, Consider the following two sentences This is basically the illustration that most explains what's going on For those of you listening, especially friends and family Who don't know (laughs) what the hell we're talking about And haven't understood a single word Perk up I think this might be the opportunity to understand something (laughs) Uh, Consider the following two sentences One There are at least three large cities older than New York Sentence two there are at least 3 perfect numbers greater than 17 actually before we continue uh,
1: what's a perfect number again perfect number a, n- a perfect number is a number that is equal to the sum of its proper parts or its aliquot parts so its parts other than itself its parts it's being div- its divisors its divisors right yeah. so you
0: take you take all the divisors such as for you know the number 12 it would be 2 3 4 6 yeah does it in 12 and well one. not 12 because we're doing a sum oh right? yeah yeah, right and so, one yeah and one no i can't yeah it, it is one, one? Yes. okay so it's one two three four six yeah all the divisors and you add them up and you get 12 yeah. right
1: you would have you don't well you would you would have 12 were a perfect number but it's, right? it's imperfect right but six is perfect six is perfect, six is perfect. Right, i
0: mean so, it even yeah. looks perfect it's got that shape right yeah yeah so one
1: one plus two plus three is six and those are the the proper parts yeah Right. It's, by the way, this notion of a perfect number is ridiculous. Um, no, nobody actually... No, you're confusing it with the ridiculous numbers. Oh,
0: ridiculous yeah. numbers. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. not very good at math. I don't, <laughs> I don't know a lot of number theory. But, but, but perfect numbers are... You know, this, this comes from a time when people thought the orbits of the planets were the platonic solids. And, right, yes. Uh, it, they, they were, it's, it's, it's borderline with numerology, except, of course, that it's a genuine concept in number theory. It's yeah. well-defined.
1: I think it's in Euclid. Not sure. I wouldn't be not surprised. not sure, but I'm pretty sure it
0: is. wouldn't be surprised. But I bet you it's also in the Hermeticist. Um, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, so, there are at least three perfect numbers greater than 17. Well, I wouldn't know how to prove that. But, of course, all you have to do is find them. Yeah. You, know, you just have the three examples. And there are at least three larger cities. No. Three large cities older than New York. Well, there's, let's name them. So, there's Beijing, Mexico City, and... London London yeah sure assuming it is <laughs> I have no idea yeah um, okay uh, do they have the same logico-grammatical form? more specifically are they both of the form here's the third sentence logical form there are at least three FGs that bear R to A where the F would be large or perfect Yeah. the G would be city or number the relation R would be um, older than New York No, or sorry older, older, than. older than Or greater than right. And A would be New York Or the number 17 Right But notice here Notice here that the The, the name A In one case refers to New York Which is a Is, is a concrete object yeah. Located in space and time mm-hmm. And in another case Is the number 17 Conspicuously Not located in space and time
1: Right Or as is traditionally Rendered on the Platonist view, at least.
0: See, <laughs> so you'll contest that. Yeah, okay, fine.
1: No, it's not just that. It's that it only is on the Platonist view that removed and that a causal. I mean, if you think it is a thought in your intuition, oh, yeah, yeah, or yeah. if you think it is marks on paper, all right, all right. then those things are very concrete. Okay,
0: <laughs> okay. I'm... It's a good thing I got my bias out before I said that. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> You're totally right. I'm just speaking as though we're all Platonists. Right. <laughs> okay. Which, which, by the way, it is, all, it is our heritage. We ought to respect our elders. Okay. What are the truth conditions? This Plato is all... One. Was the father of us all. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, this is... Uh, this is all still part of the same quote. I keep interrupting myself. I'm sorry. What are the truth conditions of one and two? Are they relevantly parallel? So this is important, right? Because we want to say, we want to ask, these whether these sentences, which look the same um, structurally, that is, their form looks the same, um, do we evaluate them in the same way, or do we treat them differently? Do we treat the the sentences of science or empirical science distinct from the sentences of math? Right. Um, it's it's without a, without an awareness of the history, it's hard to really appreciate what this is about, but. Um, superficially, if we go back to, say, um, positivist or Popperian accounts of science, uh, the semantics of sentences are always tied to testability, confirmation and disconfirmation. Right. Well, you can't very well do tests and confirmation of mathematical truths, assuming you're not uh, Quinean. Yeah, uh, right. So, so then the very same people were inclined to say that uh, the semantics of mathematical sentences, but also... Uh, logical sentences came down to proof, uh, you know. It came down to uh, theoremhood of analytic validity right. um, against an axiomatic system, Yeah. which is not certainly not how you would give the semantics for something like the sun is yellow. Right.
1: Right. Well, although in a way they they thought some of these things were pretty close in the sense that there would be protocol sentences, but <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh my god, the history of this stuff is just. Yeah, it's a, yeah. There's one sorry state after another. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's the challenge. Um, and let's pick up the next one.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the challenge. And, and then he, he says how he faced, or rather didn't face up to the challenge himself in his previous paper. He says, Some, including one of my past and present selves, suggesting he hasn't changed his mind actually yeah i missed that originally yeah. present self yeah past. okay so this is important right because <laughs> the
0: paper doesn't actually offer an answer which right. is actually part of what makes it so powerful right because everyone else in this collection has a more or less direction yeah right toward some thesis right it's natural i mean that's what you should do yeah but benassar is saying all you jokers are not even getting close yeah and and i'm, I'm not gonna even, call you out i'm not even gonna pretend right i'm just gonna say i will not be satisfied yeah until both problems are solved at the same time with the same solution yeah and so here he is saying i still don't get it <laughs> right. i still don't know what to yeah. do yeah
1: so some including one of my past and present selves reluctant to face the consequences of combining what i shall dub such a standard semantical account with a platonistic view of the nature of numbers have shied away from supposing that numerals are names and thus, by implication, that two is of the form three. That, that is of the that is that mathematical statements have the same form that that normal that statements of ordinary language do, right. and science and scientific language.
0: So here we have an example of a philosopher who did just that: did not take these to have the same form. David right. Halbert, I um, will uh, just read. David Hilbert did not regard all quantified statements semantically on a par with one another. Um, On his and such other accounts, the truth conditions for arithmetic sentences are given as their formal derivability from specified sets of axioms. When coupled with the desire to attribute a truth value to each closed sentence of arithmetic, these views were torpedoed by the incompleteness theorems. They could be restored at least to to internal consistency either by the liberalization of what counts as derivability or by abandoning the desire for completeness. I will call such views combinatorial views of the determinants of mathematical
1: truth. Oh, so I, I do actually think I know what he's talking about when he refers to the liberalization of what counts as derivability. So there's this logic called omega logic in which there's this rule of inference called an omega rule. Which I think allows you to make inferences with like infinite sentences or something like that, maybe. No,
0: I think that's way too no. clever. No, I yeah. I I, I, th- I think it's I think it's just the idea of um, of half testing, so it doesn't have to be decidable. It just has to be. I forget what the terminology is for this, but basically, um, if something is a theorem, um, no wait, how do I um you're talking about semi decidability. Yes, that's right. Semi decidability. Yeah, I think that's the liberalisation going from decidability to semi decidability. Hmm. Well, I don't know. Yeah, that's maybe. just how I took it. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know, let me just come out here as well. Uh, the reason I think that is because I used to be just like Hilbert. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> when I was when I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible, oh God. and I believed. No. <laughs> you I didn't believed, go there. <laughs> I believed the truth was proof. <laughs> I remember saying this. Yeah. Truth just is proof. Oh, man. And somebody said to me, well, what about Snow is White? I was like, that's different.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be young. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but I, I, I really believed that on some sense, in some sense, when it came to logic and math, um, right. there was no real conception of truth independent of derivability. Yeah. I still, I still have that intuition, but I reject it. On account of, well, for the very reasons that the so skillfully lays out, which is that there is great value, great, great value in having a single semantics for your language. Right. Um, we'll say more about that um, very briefly. But let's finish up with uh, the combinatorials. The account should imply. Is that still about the combinatorial? No. No, it's something else. Yeah,
1: but he was just saying that he calls these views combinatorial views. Right,
0: the idea being, of course, that um, these proofs, right, are like all the different combinations of axioms and inference rules. Right, And the truth just corresponds to some combination, sequenced combination of the application of inference rules to the axioms. Yeah. I think that's why.
1: I mean, there were like three other views that he... um, (laughs) puts under the that he places under the umbrella of combinatorialism things like conventionalist views and uh
0: yeah yeah but they all amount to the same their differentiation there is really just uh regarding what counts as an inference rule and what counts as proof right uh but they all stem from the formal system yeah uh conception in fact they may all be formalists or some species of it Mm -hmm. Mm, i'm not really sure about that one um at any rate, what's important is that they set the semantics of math and logic apart Yeah, uh, being unmoored from observation experience, experiment testing, confirmation, disconfirmation and instead tied to whatever it is that mathematicians and logicians do which mm-hmm. is clearly uh, not experiential Right Yeah. So then when he says the account in the next quote, what is he talking
1: about? Um, probably just an account of mathematical truth.
0: Yeah, okay, right.
1: Yeah, so you want me to read it? So, the account, the account should imply truth conditions for mathematical propositions that are evidently conditions of their truth, and not simply, say, of their theoremhood in some formal system. This is not to deny that being a theorem of some system can be a truth condition for a given proposition or class of propositions. It is rather to require that any theory that proffers theoremhood as a condition of truth also explain the connection between truth and theoremhood.
0: Yeah, this is um, this is important, right? So this basically follows up exactly what we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, if... If truth really is just proof, mm-hmm. um, it's it's almost like changing the subject.
1: Yeah. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um,
0: it's hard to get uh, put a finger on exactly why that is. Right. Um, actually, the way I finally understood this is I imagined. Um, some number theoretic truth that is no sorry some number theoretic proposition, uh, a universal quantified proposition, something like a, like a, like the Goldbach conjecture,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then I imagined <laughs> conceivability right so I, <laughs> yeah, yeah right. I have no idea right but I imagined that there turns out not to be a proof, but that it turns out to be true anyway. Mm-hmm. If truth is proof. It should not be easy to have this conception. But it was very easy for me to have this conception. Because all I did was imagine that there are no counterexamples.
1: Right. Right.
0: Right? I mean, you can check up to the millionth case or the ten millionth case or where the computer go as far as you like, but yeah. to a finite bound, looking for counterexamples. And then you have the perhaps unjustified intuition yeah, that sure. if there were counterexamples, they would come up soon.
1: Yeah.
0: And then you conclude from this, well, it's true, a quasi-empirical method, Mm -hmm. right? Except that um, you don't really rely on not having found a counterexample to understand the distinction between it being true and not. You just say, it would be true if, on searching for counterexamples, you found none in the limit.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? But that's not a proof. Right. Because you can never complete it. Yeah. So that alone, I think that that is what settled for me, that truth and theoremhood were not the same thing.
1: Yeah. So it's the. So let me see if I can clarify what you're what you're saying. So it's the well the the, <laughs> the obviousness of the, the meaningfulness of saying that the statement is true or false while at the same time, the mathematical statement, like the Goldbach Conjecture, while at the same time noting that if it is false, and we search for a counterexample, well... Or no, if it is true, sorry, and we're looking for a counterexample, then, well, then you'll never find one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's, it's playing with infinity, right? Sure, right. Because yeah. a infinite proof would just be... Uh, the right denial of any of every counterexample. Yeah. But but proofs must be finite. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Or at the very least if they're infinite, they must be meta theoretically finite. Well yeah, if they're <laughs>
1: infinite, they must be like recursively enumerable or something. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So
0: that's what they did it for me. And then secondarily, uh, learning something about the semantics of ordinary language. Mm-hmm or ultimately logical language, but of an empirical, but of empirical statements. Yeah. Again, using positivistic, you know, categories. Yeah. I don't admit that there are empirical statements. It's just that this is how I used to think, right? Right. So uh, learning about how to do the semantics of that as a recursion of truth functions, etc., just made it evident to me that you know given that proofs can be arbitrarily long and convoluted and that you can understand the truth of a sentence that is what it is for it to be true just by glancing at it yeah then it couldn't be that to understand the truth of something is to somehow anticipate its proof right <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it, it had to be as trivial as its syntax yeah and then the tarski story just it's just so obvious. I mean, we don't want to
1: tell ourselves like the ver- like it's strange credulity to become uh, sort of quasi or perhaps not even quasi verificationist about this and say you don't even know what you're saying until unless you know how- unless you it. know how to prove it. Like I'm never going to know how to prove any of these mathematical statements. Well, it gets better. It gets
0: better. How can you ask of a mathematician to prove a statement if he doesn't know what it means? Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is it you want me to prove? Yeah, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah.
0: You have to understand the truth conditions of the sentence in advance. Yeah. I mean, unless you take a purely syntactic right. attitude. But that's just not credible, right? I mean, right. I mean, I don't want to rely on intuitions, but...
1: No, no, um, no. It's not just that it's not credible. It's... it's um Well, it is that it's not credible. But it's not about intuition. It's just about what we believe about the nature of truth. Okay? Actually, you know reading. what it is?
0: It's about the... Interrelatedness of truth and meaning Yeah Once you come to appreciate that For something to be meaningful is for there to be truth conditions Right then, Oh yeah, that's true then That to was a not, big shift in yeah, philosophy Yeah, right, which I didn't get until after I had you know, Hilbert sensibilities Sure But once you get that identity Or not identity, but uh, let's just say strong link Right Right. It becomes clear that to know the meaning of a mathematical sentence Means to know its truth conditions but then its truth conditions can be no aid to proving it, yeah. or at least not a you know mechanical aid. Right. You still have to get super clever.
1: And there may not even be a proof. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. So this is one of those sections where the author... We didn't quote this part, but this is one of those sections where the author says, I don't have space and time to talk about this any further. Um But he did at least do us the favor of telling us who does take the time to talk about it further. Right. And that turns out to be Hartree Field in uh, another paper, not in the collection. This one is called Tarski's Theory of Truth uh, from the Journal of Philosophy, 1972. And um, I picked this one. Uh, Just briefly, what what he's arguing here is that there's two ways to understand Tarski's Theory of Truth. Without going into the theory, in case you happen not to know, by the way, that earlier interlude that was intelligible to everybody—it's over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now we're back to unintelligible. Um, so there's two ways to understand Tarski's theory of truth. One is that you get the you get an analysis of reference or denoting, perhaps. Um, is that it? Oh well, of 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 of, of truth. No, 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 no. The idea is that either truth or reference comes first. That's the, the idea. But the way he spells it out is that there's truth and then there's other semantical notions. Right,
1: such as reference, satisfaction. Satisfaction is the other one I was looking for. Yeah, about. those are, are the main ones. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah.
0: So, if you have... The idea is that if, if you... One reading is if you have truth, um, then by knowing which are the true sentences and having a Tarski-style... Uh, recursive uh, um, theory of more complex sentences, then you can derive uh, um, an analysis of satisfaction and of reference. Yeah. The other way to read it is you have reference and satisfaction already and then you get truth. The first one is attractive because we have truth presumably just by asserting and assenting. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you can recover from that. Reference and satisfaction, yeah, which is not purely syntactic. The attraction of the other is that it just naturally builds up, and Field here is just complaining uh, about the former and arguing for the latter. And I think this helps. That is Nasser's point.
1: That is he's complaining about views that want to derive things like reference and satisfaction from truth, um, yeah, and arguing that has to be the other way around.
0: Yeah. So I, I chose a quote that. Sums up the sentiment here. Um, He says, The view that we should stop, the view that we should just stop using semantic terms here and in the rest of the paper, I mean terms in the theory of reference such as true and denotes and applies to, draws its plausibility from the apparent difficulty of explicating these terms non semantically. People utter the sounds, electrons have rest mass but photons don't, or Snow is white and grass is green. (laughs) He writes it in German, but I refuse to read the German. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And we apply the word true to their utterances. We don't want to say that it is a primitive and inexplicable fact about these utterances that they are true, a fact that cannot be explicated in non-semantic terms. This is as unattractive to a physicalist as supposing that it is a primitive and inexplicable fact about an organism at a certain time that it is in pain. But how could we ever explicate in non-semantic terms the alleged fact that these utterances are true? Part of the explication of the truth of snow is white and grass is green, presumably, would be that snow is white and grass is green. Here the effect is lost because he switched from German to English.
1: Right, yeah. Um,
0: but this would only be part of the explanation for still missing is the connection
1: between... Well, in fact, it's important, though, right? Just Because, okay. yeah. because of the fact that Tarski is talking about truth in some well We'll get to that.
0: We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get, you're right. I mean, you're yeah. right. I, just, I, just, I don't know, I know how to pronounce the German. Okay. And I didn't want to do it in <laughs> French or Spanish. or anything else. It just doesn't matter. Okay. But this would only be part of the explanation for still missing is the connection between snow being white and grass being green, on the other hand, and the germ... Oh, no, I skipped a sentence. Sorry. Going back. Um... Part of the explication of the truth of snow is white and grass is green, presumably, would be that snow is white and grass is green. Right. But this would only be part of the explanation for still missing is the connection between snow being white and grass being green on the one hand, and the German utterance being true on the other hand. It is this connection that seems so difficult to explicate in a way that would satisfy a physicalist, that is, in a way that does not involve the use of semantic terms. If, in face of these difficulties, we were ever to conclude that it was impossible to explicate the notions of truth and denotation in non-semantic terms, we would have either to give up these semantic terms or else to reject physicalism. Yeah. Okay, well, this isn't exactly what I had in mind, but uh, let's, let's work with this. So first of all, there's your observation that um, it's not the homophonic translation, right? It's going from one language to the next, because it's yeah. truth in L, right? Yeah. That's being defined. But, um, Hmm, I'm feeling flat-footed here. Can you... Uh...
1: Well, be, I mean, I think the issue is whether or not uh, Tarski's theory can serve to be a theory of truth in general or not, right? I mean, I don't... I don't remember exactly what of said in the footnote, but I think there was some, some detail having to do with translations, and I don't...
0: Yeah, I think we're going to have to skip it. I think we missed it. But the best I can recover is that um, if, we want this, if we want the logical form of the mathematical and non-mathematical sentence to be the same, yeah. then it's going to have to have something to do with reference being uh, central yeah. to the semantic understanding because if you limit it like if you begin with truth you have no difficulty treating both sentences as true it gets difficult when you want to say that there's reference to numbers right but if to adopt adopt a more natural or straightforward understanding of the Tarski theory right you want to take reference as primitive in service perhaps of building to it from a causal theory of reference
1: actually I think the issue here is something like maybe even more dramatic, because what he's... What ben Ashraf is trying to say is that if you have the, those two sentences he brings up at the beginning, the sentence about New York, the three, three, three cities larger than New York, and the sentence about perfect numbers, if you want them to be not just... Um, not just to give truth conditions for them, but to give truth conditions for them as if they were, and, well, we know they are, part of the same language namely English, then it has to be one single theory of truth for the language of English.
0: Oh yes, this was definitely part of it.
1: Right, but I mean, yeah, so you, so you have to be, if you want math to not be some alien language that we somehow, <laughs> on certain <laughs> Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you know, occasion to speak, and it homophonically sounds very similar to to English, but isn't, it's some other language, Right then you need to be able to give the very same theory of truth that you're giving. And Tarsi has given us, in general, what seems to be the best theory of truth for any language. Um, Even if it's only for that language or something. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think I'm still a little lost on that, but let's let's move on. Actually, one second. Okay. Um, So, we're an hour and a half in. We covered a lot of ground. But... uh, I think we have a lot of we have a lot more in us.
1: Yeah, there's still a lot more to talk about.
0: Yeah, so unfortunately, Socrates, <laughs> I can't stick around forever. And uh, what we're gonna do is, I think, just abruptly stop. Yeah. Yeah. Abruptly stop and then pick up in episode four. Yeah. Right. In the
1: middle of this discussion, essentially.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's we always start in the middle, but we also end in the middle. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's we never really get out of the middle.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, that's really that's there really should be a term for this, like the the Quinean circle or something.
0: <laughs> well, it's more like the quinian center, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, that's right? true, yes. Yeah. It's like you're trying to do a full circle, right? But you no. <laughs> It is like a circle. No, I think we need a better number. The
1: center must hold.
0: That's it. The center must, except it doesn't. Well, center yeah. cannot hold. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but we'll try to keep it together. All
1: right. Okay. Um,
0: I'll see you on episode four, Kenny.
1: Yeah, until next time. Okay, bye.
0: What does she like to dance with? Her. Oh, just the same as any other. Thing. What was she laughing at? Ladies and
1: gentlemen, take your partner for the.
0: I think Bigfoot is blurry. That's the problem. (laughs) It's not the photographer's fault. Bigfoot is blurry, and
1: that's extra scary to me.